welcome to the Uncover. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today is, of course, nobody. At least, nobody in person. I'm here in the bunker, uh, as always, but because we're recording this in uh, late March of 2020, we're under some serious lockdown slash quarantine conditions. The thing about the bunker is it always kind of resembles a place that you would be locked down in quarantine. But these days, unfortunately, my decor matches the outside world situation. However, joining me remotely from an undisclosed location at a safe distance is none other than Dr. Lee Coonley. How are you doing, Lee? I'm doing all right. How are you, Nathan? Uh, So far, so good. So far, I'm fever-free. I do have family members, unfortunately, who have contracted it. And by it, of oh, course, no. we mean COVID nineteen, but COVID-19. they seem to be they seem to be doing okay. Okay, I also have family members who've contracted it, and they've all, they're also okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that's why we're doing this over the phone, right? That's why we're doing this over the phone. Not Is because that also of- why you introduced me for the first time as Doctor Lee Kunla. I, I'm really impressed by that. I've, I feel like my status has now gone up in this pandemic. Well, here's why. Because I feel like your <laughs> gravitas is going to be hurt by the fact that you're talking on the phone. So I thought I would uh, okay. I would improve your gravitas by remem- reminding everybody that you are, in fact, a, a PhD person. That's right. Not a real doctor. Not the kind that could help with this pandemic. But, N- no. Uh, maybe we can do something with this. Uh, what's our topic today? The Mothman, right? Maybe we can do something with Mothman. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe we can deal with a different kind of pandemic, and that is the pandemic of bad information. Maybe that is the kind of doctoring uh, that we can do. You are always better at those pivots than I am. That was a hell of a pivot. All right, so, <laughs> yeah, actually, you know what? What we're going to be doing for a few episodes, not just this one, is this is an idea that came from a viewer a while back when we did a listener mail episode, a, a listener, rather, whose nickname was, I believe, Sockfoot, and she asked... Hey, Sockfoot. Hey, yeah, hi, Sockfoot. Uh, and she asked if we could do an episode on Mothman, Bigfoot, and the Loch Ness Monster. Now, at first I thought, oh, that's brilliant. I mean, that would be a great episode. We could talk about those those three mysteries and, and then come to come some kind of a conclusion on them. But as I got further into Mothman, I realized this needs to be its own podcast episode. And then as I got even further into it and spiraled into a kind of obsession and madness... I started thinking, maybe we could have an entire, like, series just on the Mothman phenomenon. So that's what Stockfoot has initiated, is an entire series on cryptids, where we begin with Mothman. Yep. Uh, our next one is going to be on Bigfoot. Yep. Are we doing one on the Loch Ness Monster? Yeah, Elena is going to be searching for the Loch Ness Monster. Okay. I'm looking for Bigfoot, and this week we will explore the history and consequences of Mothman. Yeah, so let's get into it. Let's let's start with the All idea right. of the cryptid. Um, the cryptid. The cryptid. I think we need a definition for that. Yeah, cryptozoology is the study of hidden animals. And we should point out that this, of course, is not a recognized scientific category. Uh, instead, cryptozoology is kind of a, a pseudoscience, you might want to say, that draws from folklore, from myths, from stories, and from eyewitness accounts. So my question here is, if there is an animal that is theorized to exist but hasn't been found, is it part of cryptozoology? It depends so, on who's doing the theorizing. Ah, uh, okay, okay. 
Because I was thinking, you know, like as I was going through this, I was thinking of stuff like, you know, those worms that live down by the the thermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. Sure, I love those and, worms. Or, or, or that, that crazy fish, I have to look it up, it's called an angler fish, and it actually has like a light suspended from its forehead. Yeah, like a little fishing like rod. A, like a little fishing rod. And you think, I think to myself, well, before we had found those, if anybody had come and realized that there's a fish with a light on the front of its head or that there are worms that live in an environment where science says no living thing could live, you know, I would be like, well, that's, that's clearly not, that's not real, right? That's got to be cryptozoology. And yet there they are, existing. So, I, But you're saying it's about who it is that's doing the research, so, uh, and maybe also... Uh, how it is that they've come up with the theory of whether the thing exists or not. Yeah, well, actually, let, before we get back to cryptids, let's briefly talk about the nature of existence. Because, <laughs> I, because I've, been, I've been in solitude for some time now, and I've really had some time to think things over. Well, you know, you're lucky. I've been with kids for some time now, and I've basically stopped thinking entirely. So you can't even remember your name. No, I know. <laughs> Well, here's another name uh, that you might remember. Have you ever heard of a guy called Charles Fort? I haven't, no. Okay, so Charles Fort was a struggling science fiction author in the, at the turn of the 20th century. And he didn't do very well, and his, his works weren't published or anything, so you, you probably wouldn't have heard of any of his fiction. But he was writing about stuff like how Martians were interfering in Earth's affairs and that kind of thing. But in 1919, he gets his big break. And his big break isn't a fiction. His big break is a book he writes called The Book of the Damned. Now, The Book of the Damned is, it's like a report. He has gone out and researched all of the strange things that science can't explain, and he's put it together in this one book. I mean, he's writing this in 1919, which of course is after the scientific revolution, it's after industrialization. We have moved into a non-magical world at that point, for the most part. We've moved into a world where all of the explanations that we look for in the natural world are natural rather than supernatural explanations. Mm -hmm. But he makes the argument that science in 1919 has become too dogmatic, that science was there to try to prevent a dogmatism, but because right. it has yeah, okay. developed uh, into this sort of monolithic belief structure, that it's become too much like a religion. You know, that that's an interesting position. I, I encountered a similar position when we were researching way back at the beginning, we were researching Stargate oh, yeah. and the, the psychic, you know, the question of whether psychic ability exists or not. And one of the researchers I came across actually made the point that some of the ESP researchers were conducting themselves in a more scientific way than scientists who by, uh, you know, in large part, simply dismissed the phenomenon as not being possible and so didn't bother studying it. Well, this, so is, I could, this is what happens sorry. when we can't make eye contact. <laughs> exactly, but there's like that slight millisecond delay over Skype or whatever when... Okay, so go ahead, sorry. Uh, I was going to say that what you're saying is exactly what Fort is arguing. He's arguing that basically anything that doesn't fit in with the dominant scientific consensus is excluded from study. It's dismissed mm. as something that can't exist. If it can't fit in with the scientific theory, then rather than changing the theory, you simply exclude that observation. Oh. That's, that's interesting to me because it actually kind of sounds sort of like Thomas Kuhn in the 1950s. Funny you should say that because I'm thinking here, just as you're saying this, oh, that's interesting, sort of the sociology of science as opposed to just its own 
its it, it method and how it presents itself, but that there are there are other dynamics sometimes going on in science, like uh, conformity and authority, and you know the need to get published and status and all of that kind of stuff that sometimes might make the field more conservative than it should be. Yeah, and this is exactly what Thomas Kuhn would eventually argue in the 1950s with his paradigm shift theory. He said that basically in any kind of scientific field in any time period, there was going to be a dominant theory that basically all of the observations would fit into. And then any observation that didn't quite fit into that theory might get left out. But then you come across so many of those observations that they can't all be left out. It causes a crisis. And then science will then generate a new theory, a new paradigm to replace the old one. Fort isn't quite as careful a thinker as Thomas Kuhn. And to illustrate that, I'm going to read to you a little bit from the opening chapter of the Book of the Damned. So buckle in. Here we go. Here we go. A procession of the damned. By the damned, I mean the excluded. We shall have a procession of data that science has excluded. Battalions of the accursed, captained by pallid data that I have exhumed, will march. You'll read them, or they'll march. Some of them livid and some of them fiery and some of them rotten. Some of them are corpses, skeletons, mummies, twitching, tottering, animated by companions that have been damned alive. There are giants that will walk by, they'll sound asleep. There are things that are theorems and things that are rags. They'll go by like Euclid arm in arm with the spirit of anarchy. Here and there will flit little harlots. Many are clowns, but many are of the highest respectability. Some are assassins. There are pale stenches and gaunt superstitions and mere shadows and lively malices whims and amiabilities, the naive and the pedantic and the bizarre and the grotesque and the sincere and the insincere, the profound and the puerile. What do you think of that? I think it's amazing that people used to write that way. I mean, you could nobody would read anything like that today. Uh, I think it's fun, though. It's yeah. great. Oh, no. I'll lend you this book uh, the next time that we can actually see each other in person because it's wild. So You'll have to mail it to me, and I will dip it in a bucket of bleach. Exactly. So basically what Fort's <laughs> arguing is that existence isn't a binary option of it exists or it does not exist. He's instead arguing for a grayscale spectrum, that some things exist more and some things fall on the existing less, but you can't say that something definitely does or does not exist. Mm. Sorry, I, I was just going to say, I think that's especially true because that was something I was thinking of in terms of the topic of cryptids. That seems to be especially true when you're trying to prove something non-existent. I mean, that's almost impossible to do, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, because you would basically have to have all of the knowledge in the universe in order to maintain something did not exist. Mm. Because you would have to know all of the things and then say, I know all of the things and it's not a thing I know, therefore it doesn't exist. So maybe thinking about it in terms of a spectrum is maybe helpful in that way to say, well, there's, I mean, I'm, okay, I have to be honest, I'm thinking of it more of a spectrum of probability of existence. Is he saying it's the probability of existence or existence itself? Existence itself is on a a grayscale spectrum, according to Charles Fort, although whether he believes this or not is, is sort of hard to tell because of his writing style. He's a bit of a, like a trickster. I got to say, I prepared the entirely wrong set of things uh, to bring to this conversation. I had no idea we were going to start like with ontology and the nature of existence. I mean... <laughs> and we're only going to go, because this is the Mothman story, we're only going to go weirder from here. 
this is not what I expected. All right. So the Book of the Damned, it basically, I've read this thing. It is a, it is a hard read because it's, it's a catalog. It's a catalog of all the strange and weird and unexplained events that, that kind of land on the less real half of the spectrum. So he spends pages and pages, like hundreds of pages, just listing things that have fallen from the sky. Uh, fish, mm. frogs, jellyfish, stones, that kind of thing. Um, and interestingly, he also talks about UFOs. Okay. And this was, of course, 30 years before Kenneth Arnold coined the phrase flying saucer and started up the big UFO craze in North America. But mm. he does spend a few chapters talking about UFOs. So what we're going to be doing for these episodes is we're going to be kind of leaning into this kind of Fortean approach to being open-minded and saying, okay, do these things, like how much do these things exist? On that grayscale spectrum, how far along do these cryptids exist? Because as you pointed out... Can you give me an example of something that would be halfway on on this grayscale spectrum between existence and non-existence? I think halfway would be a tricky one. I think that most things are congregated in the mostly existing part, and then a lot of things are congregated in the far less existing part. But for something Uh to exist halfway, I mean, I could give you the example of subatomic particles. Okay. If you want to get into quantum theory. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. I'm guessing you don't want to, on this episode about Mothman, get into quantum theory. No, please. So let's talk about animals instead. Uh, You talked about the idea that, you know, there's all sorts of weird animals that do exist. The platypus, would you believe in the platypus if you heard about it? I still don't really believe it. Uh, Wow, hot take on the platypus. Uh, How about the the pangolin? I don't even know what that is. It's like a two-legged armored anteater. Oh, okay. How about a dick-dick? You ever seen a dick-dick? No. Are you making this up? I have to look it up now. No. Okay, be careful if you're looking it up. It's D-I-K-D-I-K. <laughs> D-I-K, D-I-K. Yeah. It's a thing, eh? It's a thing. It's like a tiny, tiny little deer. Now, all those things exist. Oh, my God. It's like a, it's like a rabbit deer. Yeah, it's adorable. So, oh, can, are these available as pets? I can't imagine that they would be. But uh, they're so cute. Look up pangolin. If you think dick-dicks are cute, look up a pangolin. I can't believe they're called dick dicks. Pangolin. Yeah, no, I, I, I got to say I'm more down with the dick dick than the pangolin. I mean, the pangolin is hilariously funny looking, but the, the dick dick's really cute. Because I wish I was an armored creature, I, I have a real affinity for armored creatures. So actually, you know what, from a Fordian <laughs> perspective, this is helpful because those are all things that would be on the, on the existence portion of that spectrum. Let's, okay. Now, maybe I do have some things that we could find in the middle of that spectrum. Okay. okay. In Georgia, they have a monster called the Altamahaha. The okay. Altamahaha. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. And it's supposed to be some kind of giant, horrifying, like, lizard dragon monster. Okay, yeah. And it lives in rivers. Well, uh-huh. in Georgian rivers, you do have something called the alligator garfish. And if you've ever okay. seen a picture of one of those, they're nine feet long, and they look like a Whoa. cross between a crocodile and a pike, and they're terrifying. Kind of looks like the Loch Ness Monster. It looks a little Loch Ness Monstery, Or, of, yeah. of course, you've heard of the Kraken. Of course. Who hasn't heard of the Kraken? Yeah. Giant, many arms, like, grabs ships and, and tears them to their watery doom. We do have an animal that, that lives in the ocean called the Colossal Squid. Yeah, that thing's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, 33 feet long, 1,500 pounds. And there's a ton of them down there. And we didn't find an adult one until 1981. So maybe something like the Altamaha and the Kraken, maybe those would be things that sort of halfway exist because they are based on on something. They're not non-existence. Right. right, right, right. But what they are is maybe not quite what the story suggests they are. Exactly. Or oh, something like, um, you know what is a real triumph for anybody who's in cryptozo- uh, cryptozoology is, of course, the coelacanth. What is that? The coelacanth is a... It's just a hideous-looking fish. But the interesting thing about it is that we knew about the coelacanth for years because we had found fossils of it. But okay. scientists had assumed that it had died off at the same, basically at the same time as the Tyrannosaurus rex. 66 right. million years ago is when we thought the last coelacanth was on Earth. And then in wow. 1938, they found one, alive, swimming around. So all of this stuff does, as it relates to cryptozoology, make me think, like, I, I guess, the way I would put it is if I was wrong about my take on some cryptozoological specimen like the uh, Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot or something, I feel like my worldview would not be shattered as a result. Yeah. Um, if, if I were wrong about, uh, we did all these episodes on aliens, and if I was wrong about the fact that I don't believe aliens have been traveling faster than speed of light and coming to visit Earth in order to do all kinds of obscene things to people, if I was wrong about that, I would have to rethink a lot of how I think about the universe. And I think, Nathan, you're making the point here by noting all of these weird creatures that we either thought were gone or thought were extinct or thought didn't exist, but turns out they do. They do fit into a kind of scientific worldview, even if it's, um, as our author earlier stated, stuff that's out of fashion or out of favor, it still seems to accord with you know, evolution, biology, these are biological specimens. We can account for how they got there. And I almost feel like if Mothman or Bigfoot existed, I wouldn't be devastated by that knowledge. Well, uh, I think if Bigfoot existed, that wouldn't have to change much of the way that we think about things like uh, biology and evolution. On the other hand, if Mothman exists, then we've got an issue. That's what... Well, I guess I was just going to try and segue into what is so special then about Mothman? In what way is Mothman not just another of these sort of hideous creatures that maybe we haven't discovered yet? I think because Bigfoot would belong in the realm of the natural. Uh, Even something like the Loch Ness Monster, which Elena will get to in a few weeks, that would still belong into the realm of the natural. But as you'll see, Mothman may be dips one of his moth-like toes into the world of the supernatural. Ah. So then, this is the question for today and for the next couple of weeks. How real is Mothman? So let's get into it. Let's get into Mothman. Okay. Okay, the first thing we need to talk about is, I'm going to give you the setting. Point Pleasant, West Virginia is a small town. It's on the banks of the Ohio and Kanaha River. It's, it's not a very big town. It's never really gotten past about 6,000 people. And it struggled in its early days to, to get much above 3,000. Now, Point Pleasant, in 1928, was, sort of received the modern world in a way. Because in 1928, this tiny little town, which had been very hard to get to, it was built on the rivers, which is great, but those are big rivers and they're hard to cross. Well, in 1928, in Point Pleasant, 
they built something called the Silver Bridge over the Ohio River. And this thing was gorgeous. It was shining. It was painted silver. It, it looked like it was from the future because it was using this, this new suspension bridge technology. And pretty much overnight after this thing was built, all of a sudden this town gets exposed to the highway. It gets exposed to travelers. It gets exposed to the automobile. All because this bridge kind of, it wasn't just a bridge across the river. It was sort of a bridge into the 20th century for this little town. Okay. Now, yeah. the, the weird thing about this bridge, because of its brand new innovative suspension system, Apparently, when you drove across it, you could feel this giant bridge moving under your weight. Huh. And so at the same time that this bridge allowed you to get somewhere, you were never really entirely sure of your footing when you were on it. And that's right. exactly how I feel about researching Mothman. Huh. There have been plenty of times when I felt like I was getting somewhere, but I never really felt like I was able to get my footing. So when I was researching this, I was feeling like I was one of those drivers in 1928 driving across the Silver Bridge into Point Pleasant. Now, this town, in World War II, it starts to grow because the army builds a massive explosive plant basically right next door on about 3,600 acres of land. And this is a huge facility. Underground tunnels, hidden bunkers, laboratories. But it's all camouflaged, so it can't be seen from the air. And then after the war, the facility, of course, gets abandoned. Uh, some, but not all, of the explosives are removed. And uh, the locals start referring to it as the TNT area. Mm. As time goes on, all that camouflage that had been built up to protect it from, from spies and from saboteurs, it starts to, to fall apart and fade away. And so, weirdly, it's almost like this giant facility starts to emerge from the ground, like it's growing. Wow. Uh, and the other thing that we learn is that chemicals from that abandoned factory start to leach into the ground around Point Pleasant. Uh-huh. But the locals, I mean, it's in a... Let me ask you this. If you lived in a small town and you were a teenager and there was this area that was abandoned that you could drive to, what would you do there? Oh, all kinds of things. I mean, you'd go there with your friends to drink. Yep. You would go with uh, your uh, romantic fling and and uh, make out or sure. whatever teenagers did back then you would throw rocks right and, oh so much rock throwing so, so much rock throwing and maybe if you could get some spray paint some spray painting i mean it's it, it's it's it would be tons of fun yeah you know in fact actually it wasn't an abandoned chemical plant but uh when i was growing up in toronto there was an abandoned psychiatric hospital uh, oh. where we now teach actually <laughs> yes that's converted. true but back uh, when I was growing up, that place was abandoned, and we used to do exactly those things there. Yeah. So you know exactly what it was like to have this sort of weird, sort of spooky, but sort of interesting place that, that you could go to as a teenager and have a place that wasn't at school and wasn't at home. It was like a third yeah. place. I think the spooky part is like that you, you reminded me that now that that was another element to that whole teenage stuff in these abandoned places was a bit of uh, sort of showing off and also scaring yourselves and scaring others, you know, going into a basement in the middle of the night, one of these abandoned places was always quite scary. Yeah. Especially if you went with a bunch of friends and then that fear would kind of start to spread from person to person and then you'd, yeah. you'd kind of be egging it on. Yeah. So exactly. you, so that gets us in the right frame of mind, I think to get to 1966 so at the end of 1966, there's some 
weird and wild stuff happening in West Virginia, not just Point Pleasant, but the area around Point Pleasant. I'll give you an example. November 2nd, 1966, a sewing machine salesman named Woodrow Derenberger is driving along Interstate 77 to a place called uh, Parkersburg, which is about an hour's drive northeast of Point Pleasant. And as he's driving, he feels like he gets passed by somebody. But it's not a car. It's this weird shape. It it kind of looks like, um, like a bell, basically, like a big bell. It pulls out in front of him, and then it stops, and he slams on the brakes, and he gets out of his car. A door appears in this giant bell, and this tall man emerges from it. And Woodrow feels like he's sort of frozen in place. And the man says that he means no harm. He says that he comes from a different country. He asks Darren Berger some questions about the area. He says his his own name is Cold. Later, Darren Berger would say that the man's name was Indrid Cold. Then this strange man says that he would see Darren Berger again. He climbs back into his strange bellcraft, and it flies away. You know, I think I've actually heard this story before. Yeah, that's one Um, of the most famous of the alien contactee stories. Yeah, I was just going to say, when we were doing our UFO research, I came across this story. And it's so famous that it feels like it's gone into folk, into sort of urban legend folklore category, where everybody's heard this story. We don't know where it came from. I didn't even know it actually had an actual origin to it. I felt like it was one of these stories that was just a myth at this point. Oh, yeah. Not only does it have a name attached to it, but uh, it's a real person. I've seen interviews with that person. So Hmm. while we can't say whether the story is real or not, we can say that the person is real and that this is a story that the person has told. But this is just like the the amuse-bouche, if you will. (laughs) Because 10 days later, 1966, November 12th, in a town called Clendenden in West Virginia, it's about an hour and a half uh, southeast of Point Pleasant by car, five gravediggers spot a large creature. It's gray... It's got huge wings. It's got bright red eyes. Uh, It's sort of hovering around the graveyard, and then it takes off. This is November 12th, 1966. Now, this story, unlike the Derenberger story, this story, I could not find any names for any of these people. And so as such, I'm going to probably dismiss this sighting because Hmm. I couldn't get any names. I couldn't find any interviews. I couldn't get any more specifics. So this seems more like an addition to the Mothman story than like a a true sighting. I see. But we don't need it anyway, because on November 15th, 1966, uh, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Millette, two very young married couples, are doing exactly what you described you would do if you had an abandoned TNT factory near your home. They're in their 57 (laughs) Chevy, and they are driving around the TNT area, looking for, you know, a place to maybe pitch woo. (laughs) But instead of pitching woo, they see something. They see something with glowing red eyes. They see something with big wings. And they are terrified. And they try to drive away from it. Uh, There's some sort of discrepancies here in the story. Sometimes the story says their car stalled. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it says the engine flooded. But uh, they see something with red eyes and wings. And it comes towards them. They get terrified. They drive away. Uh, They drive all the way to the police station. That's how frightened they are. And they tell the cops, listen, we just saw this weird thing out by the TNT plant. 
Now, the cops go out there. They don't take them too seriously, but according to the cops, they don't appear drunk. They don't appear high. Uh, it's a small mm-hmm. town. The cops know these kids. And, mm-hmm. and these kids are real. I've seen interviews with these, with these people. And so the cop go, goes out there and encounters some sort of strange uh, issues with his radio. He's getting a lot of static. He's hearing a lot of weird noises. So he heads back to base. The next day, November 16th, 1966, the town grabs a bunch of weapons and they march out to the TNT factory. Like one day later, they're like, what, there's something out there? Let's go shoot yeah, it. Yeah, that, 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 that does seem like a bit of an overreaction, especially since the cop didn't see anything, right? I mean, it was interesting when you were narrating, it, it almost sounded like he was going to also encounter some red-eyed, sharp-toothed monster, but it seems a bit much for, on the account of two kids, to then, you know, get the whole town together and go looking for trouble. Yeah, well, I guess people believe the story. And, I mean, it did show up, um, this story did show up the next day in newspapers. It was in the wow. uh, Point Pleasant Register, it was in the Athens Messenger, and it was in the Columbus Dispatch. Like, this is a fairly well-established story. Something else I wanted to point out, because this is fascinating to me. One of the key attributes of all the Mothman stories is that weird stuff starts happening with electronics. It starts happening with your radio, it starts happening with your TV, and it starts happening with your phone. Well, just now, as I'm talking to you on my phone, my phone gave me a notification that said that you were calling me. Dun-dun-dun. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You are staring at a Mothman creature as we speak, are you not? Uh, yeah, yeah, I am, and it's glowing red eyes. <laughs> um, I know that we're not in the area of what is it actually and theories to try and account for this, but just because of the red eyes and sharp teeth comment that you made, it struck me that as I was doing my Bigfoot research, one of the, uh, actually one of the people who's out looking for Bigfoot said that he felt that this red-eyed, sharp-toothed kind of image that we have is almost an archetypal fear. And I I don't know about explaining anything that way because it seems like a very convenient explanation to get rid of anything that, you know, doesn't easily account, uh, fit into our scientific models. And yet when we're talking about these cryptids, there does seem to be this sort of um, primeval fear of yeah, and primeval fear of that monster that's lurking out in the whatever to get us and eat us, and it has red eyes and sharp teeth. Uh, so I was just curious what you thought about that. I think you're right, and I think the other thing when I heard this account, and again I've seen interviews with these people, and I I believe these people when they when they're talking, but I looked up some of the non-cryptozoology of the area, some of the animals that we do accept as existing. Mm-hmm. And one of the animals that lives in that area is the great horned owl. Now, I don't uh, know, okay. have you ever seen one of these in real life? Yeah, they are pretty impressive, and they have shiny eyes. Shiny eyes at night, if, you're, if your lights catch them, they're huge. Yeah. So imagine if there was a great horned owl, and it was sitting on like a fence post or something, so then it would be, like, a great horned owl is almost like three feet tall on its own. If it was sitting on a fence post that was about four feet tall and then it spread its wings, it's got like a six-foot wingspan. That would scare yeah. the hell out of you. 
sure, especially at night. And as you were saying, also, when you are with others, sometimes that fear can really start ratcheting up. You know, I might be a little bit afraid and you might be a little bit afraid, but the two of us together can get ourselves really afraid. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. And in that situation, if you see one of these creatures, that might just trigger that archetypal fear. Again, I'm not really sure if I buy that theory, but when it comes to these monsters at night things, mm-hmm. okay, just to add some something to it. And again, I, I, I don't, I don't want to really pursue this too far as an explanation, but there is something compelling about have you ever noticed that when people are afraid of animals, they tend so often to be afraid of spiders and snakes? Yep. Even though in most of the places where I've lived, there, there aren't even dangerous spiders. Like, that's not something that exists. Mm-hmm. And snakes, too, are extremely rare. Dangerous but ones, yeah. I'm, dangerous ones. But even, you know what, even non-dangerous ones, I, I think I could count on, on one hand the amount of times I've seen a snake uh, in the area in which I live. What? And you wonder, why are people so afraid of these things if they're not the actual dangers in their community? And one theory I had encountered was, oh, this is, um, you know, a sort of an evolutionary adaptation where in the grasslands of the savannah, the kinds of things that were very dangerous were poisonous snakes and uh, poisonous spiders. Yeah, so there would be an evolutionary advantage to... Being afraid Just of snakes, basically. Away. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe this fits in with that, you know, that there's also an evolutionary advantage to staying away from things with glowing eyes and sharp teeth that are way bigger than you. Yeah, I, I think that there are some possible explanations of what these four teenagers saw that don't involve the teenagers being liars or being a hoax. I think, again, it's possible that it was a Mothman. I th- Personally, I think it was probably a great horned owl. Right. Are, just out of curiosity, are there any um, vultures in that area? Yeah, because there's, there's are, turkey vultures. They're also quite large. Those are huge, those yeah. things, and, and hilarious and kind of human-like. Yeah, and they have and an odd way of walking around that seems kind of yeah. haunted. <laughs> they're actually one of my favorite birds. They're so cool. Oh, sure. But here's the thing, that isn't the only time that Mothman shows up. Okay. That's, that's like the first account of Mothman that I'm taking seriously, because like I said, I, I dismissed the, the, grave, the grave digger story. But this one, nope, this definitely happened. Uh, okay. November 27th, 1966, there is an 18-year-old named Connie Carpenter. She's driving home from church, and she claims she saw the Mothman standing on a golf course. Again, it folded its wings at her, it, it flew at her. With it, she remembers these red eyes. Those red eyes fixed on her. It flew towards the car. She froze. She felt like it was a menacing, sort of awful, evil presence. And then it flew over the car. And afterwards, she developed conjunctivitis in her eye, hmm. or uh, pink eye, as it's called. Now, that could be an example, again, of something that we often call post hoc ergo propter hoc, something co- happened after something else. And so then we think that it was caused by that thing. Maybe she right. just picked up pink eye. But again, it's, yeah. it's one of the stories. So a couple of things just on that story. Now, with that story, the, the information from the first sets of kids was already out, right? Because that whole town had mobilized. Oh, absolutely. It had so, been in the newspapers. So it was all the town was talking about. So this person would have already had some kind of... Um, uh, she would have been primed. 
primed, thank you. She would have been primed in terms of how to interpret a monster if she were to see one. Yeah, and again, if we wanted to look at it from a non-14 perspective, maybe she saw a large vulture or something out of the corner of her eye, it unfolded its wings as the car drove by, maybe it, it started to fly away, and then we're basically looking at Mothman mania in this town at this point. Yeah. Or... I, this is... I don't know if this is a useful question to ask, maybe edit it out later, but if this woman had seen a Bigfoot, would she have, would she have thought she saw a Mothman? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think probably <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. There was over 100 sightings. They started to flood in. There is a journalist in the area named Mary Heyer, and she starts to do reports on these. Uh, Connie Carpenter, who developed Pink Eye, she was actually the niece of Mary Heyer, which isn't that surprising. It's a very small town. Now, here's another one, and I think that you and I, and probably Elena, because I'm going to call her up later and ask her about it, I think we're all going to have the same interpretation of this next sighting. So listen to this. Okay, so there's a, this is not a teenager. This is a man named Lawrence Gray. He wakes up in his bed at 3 a.m. with some kind of terrible feeling. He looks beside his bed, and he sees Mothman standing there. Now, Gray says that he was paralyzed when this happened. He couldn't move. He tried to yell, and he couldn't. All he could see were these, this evil presence with these glowing red eyes. And what Lawrence Gray said that he did then was he just started repeating some Bible verses in his head. And what Mothman did was simply dissolve into nothingness, and he was able to move mm. again. Now, okay. I, I bet you I know what you're going to think this is. What do you think yep. this was an example of? Okay, so I think this is probably an example of sleep paralysis. Mm-hmm. I got to admit, Nathan, <laughs> I was somewhat skeptical about sleep paralysis. I mean, look, I know that it exists, right? But not in the kind of prevalence that uh, I now realize it exists in it's, the population. It's very so common. You have experienced it, right? And it was probably the most frightened I've ever been. So maybe we should just, not everybody has followed us since the beginning, maybe we should just remind them. And I have not experienced sleep paralysis, so I'll let you do the explaining. What, what is that? Oh, you've got to try it. When you go to well, sleep... Well, I'd like to, but you know, it's never happened. It's, it's pretty amazing. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners, I guarantee you, if you've had sleep paralysis, actually, we want you to email us and tell, you, tell us about it, because I think we'll probably okay. do a whole sleep paralysis episode. Basically, yeah, what happens is... Say that Sorry, I'm to interrupt, but just to, on your point there, that after you told me about sleep paralysis, I started checking in with my students every semester. Yeah. And I got to say, about two to five students in any class have had it every semester. Yep. So I'm starting to realize this is more of a phenomenon than I had realized. Nobody in my family has it. And uh, besides you, none of my friends have talked about it. So I didn't think it was a big thing. But it's out there. It's a, it's, a, it's a phenomenon in the world. Oh, it's a phenomenon in the world. Basically, what's happening very quickly is that when you dream, your body is paralyzed in, so that you don't act out your dream, which would cause you terrible injury. Sometimes you will wake up before that paralysis wears off, and you'll feel like you're being held down. You'll, you'll feel like somebody is pinning you to the bed or sitting on your chest. And often what your brain will start to do is if there's like shadows on the walls, those shadows will start to turn into menacing monsters to explain this awful feeling that you're having. It is extremely realistic. It is extremely terrifying. And when I saw an interview with Lawrence Gray talk about this, again, 
I absolutely believed in his experience. I believe that's what happened to him. But I think yeah. there's a very strong possibility that what that was was actually sleep paralysis. And because there had been so much Mothman talk in his town, his brain had probably been primed to form those shapes into like a Mothman-esque kind of creature. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. What about the example before the woman was driving, but didn't she also feel some kind of paralysis as well? Because while you were telling that story, I was wondering about sleep paralysis as, a, as an explanation for the previous example. Well, it's tricky because, of course, a lot of people, when they are afraid, they suffer some kind of paralysis as well. Mm. Like mm. people will, okay. like people will sometimes freeze up when they when they encounter something scary. Yeah. In fact, I'm just going to take a quick second to call Elena and get her opinion on this particular story. Hello? Hello, can I please speak to Dr. Elena Papianis, please? That is, she is speaking. This uh, is me. Hi, Dr. Papianis. This is Nathan Radke from, from work. <laughs> hi. I think I've heard of you. Yeah, how, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good, you know, um, spending lots of time in and around my home. Yep. Um, yeah, how about yourself? Uh, also spending a ton of, ton of time in the bunker. Okay. And I was yeah. just saying this on the podcast, the bunker kind of feels like the sort of place where you should be isolated and quarantined anyway because of all the cement. Totally. Yeah, I was going to say it's like it probably just feels relatively normal for you. Yeah, I, I can't tell that much of a difference from where I'm sitting right now. No, that's good. That's kind of That's kind of comforting. Now, the opposite of comforting, of course, is the podcast that Lee and I are doing right now on Mothman. Mm-hmm. How did that go? Or how is that going currently? Uh, it's still going, but I have a question for you. I just want your opinion mm-hmm. on this one specific part of the Mothman situation. Okay. 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 At this point, the Mothman has been spotted a bunch of times. Uh, a bunch of teenagers have seen it. Uh, they've told the cops. The town folk have all gotten angry and shown up with like rifles and shotguns and stuff trying to find the Mothman. Now, I, I want your opinion on one specific sighting of the Mothman. Okay. So there's a man, he's in his bed, he's asleep. He wakes up at three o'clock in the morning and he feels like there's something terrifying in the room with him. And he moves his eyes over to the side and he sees Mothman standing right beside his bed. And he says he's, he's paralyzed. He tries to scream and he can't. He tries to move and he can't. But after he waits for a couple seconds, Mothman just dissolves into nothingness. What's your take on that story? I mean, that clearly sounds like a instance of sleep paralysis that's what we said yeah because i mean if mothman's in the news and there's a bunch of stories circulating around it's like right there in his consciousness or subconscious or both and uh and then end up sleeping and i mean it sounds like he was sleeping on his back and that it happens more when you're sleeping on your back if you see him like and then mothman supposedly appears there and the whole can't move can't scream all that stuff is very indicative of sleep paralysis it's classic have you ever had sleep paralysis i have and it's terrible oh man did Um, did you see anything no but i felt like someone was there and i was trying to tell them that i was awake but i couldn't tell them and so you're like trying to scream through not being able to move and it's very freaky man what a horror show yeah it's terrible so at this point something is happening in this town And now I'm going to introduce you to two researchers. The first one is named Gray Barker. Now, Gray Barker is sort of from the area. He was born in the area. In 1952, 
Gray Barker was working at a movie theater as a booker. So somebody who would bring movies in and promote the movies and try to get people into the theater to see those movies. Oh, okay. But uh, something that happens in 1952 that kind of changes his profession is there's another UFO situation called the Flatwoods Monster. We're not going to get into that because we don't have time because we've gone about 40 minutes and I haven't really talked about Mothman yet. (laughs) But Gray Barker starts to research the Flatwoods Monster and then he realizes this was his passion all along. He wanted to become like a Fortean researcher of the unexplained and and the supernatural. So this sparks an interest in him in UFOs. And he starts writing for uh, a publication called Space Review. Now, this publication is published by a man named Albert Bender, who ran an organization called the International Flying Saucer Bureau, or the IFSB. But in 1953, Bender folds up this organization. And when Barker asks him why, Bender says that it's because of pressure from a powerful authority. In 1956, Barker writes about all this in his book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, And this is where the idea of the men in black first shows up in print. Hmm. Because Barker is making the argument that Bender, who ran this Flying Saucer Bureau, was pressured by the men in black to stop researching into flying saucers. So how important is that story in the UFO community? So this is the first mention ever. This uh, is the first mention in, in print of the men in black. Okay. And what year is it? 1956. 1956. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, that must be a seminal story in the uh, UFO lore because, I mean, we even have a movie franchise now as a result. Yeah. And there's so much tied in with that. So Gray Barker, in 1966, he's become very influential in the UFO community, and he travels to Point Pleasant to interview people about Mothman. Mm. And he invites another reporter named John Keel, who is going to be even more important, this figure, to this story. So now we've got Gray Barker, the guy who wrote these books on the Men in Black. We've got John Keel, who, again, is kind of a 14 researcher who kind of looks for those things on the, on the outskirts of, of knowledge. And both of, both of these men write books about this phenomenon. In 1970, Barker writes a book called The Silver Bridge. And in 1975, Keel writes a book, The Mothman Prophecies. So you might think, oh, this is fantastic. We've got two firsthand accounts of the events of this time period in Point Pleasant. So that must really clear things up. But unfortunately, if anything, it makes it way muddier. So let's start with Gray Barker's account. Okay. Now, like I said, when Gray Barker uh, started researching UFOs, he was working as a theater booker. And I think his training was in publicity. His training was in hype. And he sort of looked at UFO research with a promoter's eye, not a truth seeker's eye. Okay. I mean... You and I are huge fans of the work of Captain Edward Ruppelt. Yes. Who uh, was in charge of Operation Blue Book for the only period of time when you and I have any respect for that operation. Yeah. And, and, and what a respect we have, though. I mean, it just really is the high watermark for how to do this kind of skeptical research of paranormal, unexplained, conspiratorial stuff. Yeah. And, and we always recommend this book. If you have any interest in, in flying saucers, UFOs, you have to look at Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. And it was actually, the, uh, his official report just made slightly more readable. Yeah, it's fantastic. So imagine the opposite of Ruppelt's careful work, and that's what Gray Barker mm-hmm. is up to. To the point where... That's, too, that's really too bad, because, 
as you were saying about these two researchers that were getting into the game at this point, right when it's getting interesting, it's too bad that you don't have somebody who isn't already coming in with uh, a sort of an agenda. You would want somebody coming in just saying, oh, I wonder what's going on here. It sounds interesting. Let's see what kind of evidence we can accumulate. But you're saying that's not what happened. No, I can't tell you how many times over the last few weeks as I'm researching this, I thought to myself, I wish that Ruppelt had been on this one. I wish that yeah. he had been sent in to research it because it would have been so much easier for me. Instead, we have people like Gray Barker, who, with his promoter's eye, and he also opened up a uh, publishing company that published a lot of books on UFOs. So he's also trying to sell books. Mm-hmm. And so in order to do this, sometimes rather than reporting the situation, he tries to create the situation. And he, and he right. perpetuates a lot of hoaxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1957, he used stolen State Department stationery to write to a man called George Adamski. Now, George Adamski uh, was an abductee, somebody who claimed to have been kidnapped by aliens. And so uh, we have Gray Barker writing to this guy who thinks he's kidnapped by aliens on State Department stationery, telling Adamski, we're from the State Department, we appreciate and approve of your UFO work. In 1967... Barker writes a book about Adamski and describes that letter that Adamski received, but rather than admitting, oh, and I was the one who wrote it as a prank, he describes it as one of the great unsolved mysteries of the UFO field. Where did this letter come from? When confronted with, and this is something that I've also encountered in the Bigfoot research, what, what is your take when you encounter that one of the key players in your narrative has lied in either another field or in a related way about what you're researching, does that invalidate the stuff that we're not sure about as a result? Do we now have to look at the other stuff that this person is saying and say, you know what, I don't know if we can trust it, or do we take it on face value until we can prove otherwise? What's your take on it? It sort of poisons the well a little bit. I mean, here we don't have somebody who was incorrect or somebody who misunderstood a situation. We have somebody who has a history of actively doing pranks and hoaxes. Right. I think as soon as somebody has that... And stands to benefit. And stands to benefit from it. And unfortunately, that doesn't mean that anything they say is automatically untrue, but it means that we can't really put that much faith into the things that they say that aren't collaborated by other people. Right, right, right. <clears throat> and it gets even worse than that. In 1966, uh, along with a fellow prankster I called uh, James Mosley, uh, Gray Barker and Mosley film a fake flying saucer and attempt to pass it off as legitimate. And I've, okay. se- I've seen the footage. It's hilarious. It looks like a little small model flying saucer dangled by a string from a fishing rod. <laughs> That's probably what it was. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> So this is the problem with Gray Barker. And I, I spent like days on Gray Barker because something I started to wonder was, wait, here's a guy who's introducing hoaxes into the UFO community. Here's a guy who's discrediting the UFO community. Is it possible? And this is where I start to spiral off into my paranoia. I think I know what you're going to say. Where, where am I going to go? CIA? Yeah. Is, is this it, guy yeah, an right? Air Force intelligence plant? Yeah, Exactly. Because we've come across that before. I mean, think about the example of Paul Benowitz and Special Agent Doty. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which we talked about in an earlier episode. So I started to look into Gray Barker. Yeah, okay. All I can say for sure is that the FBI, he wasn't working for the FBI. 
Okay. Because I did come across a bunch of files from the 1950s about Gray Barker. The FBI was actually very concerned about him, and they wanted to get copies of all of his work. Because mm. based on the memos that I read from the FBI, I think the FBI thought that Gray Barker might be a Soviet plant who was introduced <laughs> into America in order to get people afraid of UFOs so they wouldn't be afraid of the Soviets enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that I just take this uh, at face value now. I'm like, yeah, that's sure. That sounds totally reasonable. <laughs> yep, that adds but up. It, it is what happens as you get deeper into these conspiratorial worlds. Some conspiracies turn out to be totally bunk, and yet others, you know, they just have this unending life, and it kind of makes interpreting what is going on out there a little more muddy. Yeah. Because I find myself, too, wondering, like, hold on a second, am I being played just from the other angle? Yeah, exactly. And that's why I'm telling you, researching Mothman, I felt like I was driving across the the Silver Bridge. I felt like the ground underneath me kept swaying because I kept asking these questions. I don't think questions. you ever mentioned what actually happened to the Silver Bridge. Oh, we'll get to that. Okay. Because <laughs> that ground swaying beneath your feet is not just uh, a nice metaphor. No, it is not. Now, the, the question is, okay, so was Gray Barker a Soviet agent sent to America to try to cause chaos? Was he uh-huh. a, a an Air Force intelligence agent who was sent in to discredit the UFO community? Or was he just a guy who was trying to make a bunch of money? Right. <clears throat> I, I think he was probably just a guy who was trying to make a bunch of money. But the fact mm-hmm. that these other possibilities are even remotely possible shows you what a strange time we're trying to research. Mm-hmm. Because if I did come across evidence that he was contacted by the Kremlin, or if I came across evidence that he was contacted by Air Force Intelligence, I, would, I wouldn't be that surprised. No. But I think probably he was just a hoaxer and a guy who was trying to make some money. Okay. So let's move to the other guy, uh, John Keel, the reporter who Gray Barker calls in. So John Keel shows up. At, when he gets called about the Mothman, he's, he's currently looking into a story about a mutant cat. So he's like, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this mutant cat story on the back burner. I got to get to West Virginia to look into this Mothman situation. He shows up in December 17th, 1966. Uh, he starts working with that local journalist, uh, Mary Heyer, and, uh, whose niece had developed conjunctivitis after her run-in with Mothman. And I think that Keel genuinely wants to understand what's happening. I don't think he's a scammer. I don't think he is trying to like make money off this. I think he's genuinely interested, and he wants to figure out what's happening. And so he goes down to observe the situation. But now quantum theory is going to come up for the second time in this episode. <laughs> you can't observe an event without changing that event. Mm. And so by being in the Mothman story, Keel changes and then becomes the Mothman story. Huh. And now, uh, I've read the Mothman prophecies about five times at this point, and it's sort of reflected in that book that Keel wrote, because it isn't really about Mothman so much. It's more about his experiences researching the Mothman. I mean, kind of in the same way that this podcast isn't really about the Mothman, it's about my experiences trying to research the Mothman. Right, yeah. So, Keel never sees the Mothman, that never happens, but he does meet dozens of people who claim to have seen it. And as people were talking to him, they were also telling him about other things. Missing pets, UFO encounters, strange noises, weird phone calls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, Keel starts to get weird phone calls. Oh, and also he starts to hear reports of missing livestock, uh, strange noises, strange sights. And then he hears this very specific story. A 
apparently a strange man dressed all in black showed up at a house asking to use the phone in the middle of the night. And he had a weird accent, and he had kind of wild eyes, and he, he, he was clearly an outsider. He was a stranger. He didn't belong in that town. His story didn't add up. His story didn't make sense. And so Keel starts to think, okay, I've got a lead now. Like, this seems to be like maybe one of these men in black situations. And so he yeah. decides he's going to track down this mysterious stranger. And then when he finds out where the house was, and he finds out what day this happens, he realizes, oh, that was me. I broke down in front of that house. I went to use that, that, those people's phone. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. So, I, it, Wait. Okay, you're going to have to edit out some of my confusion here, but sure. is it that he had like some kind of breakdown, some kind of split, some kind of like where he can't remember his own past? And No, it or, was that yeah. he, heard, he heard this story secondhand. Oh, okay, 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 sorry. Somebody else approached I, him and said, like, you know, my neighbors had this weird thing happen. And he's like, what? And then when right, he finds okay. out who the neighbors are, he's like, oh, that was... That was me. I did that. That was me. I see. Okay. Sorry. I, 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 I must have missed that part where it was a secondhand account. And I'm thinking he's now remembering. <laughs> he's losing his memory. and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. No, I think that's and, good. I think edit that... that out to make me look slightly smarter. <laughs> yeah. I'll edit it out to make me smarter too. <laughs> and so this is sort okay. of a weird self-fulfilling prophecy because there's all these strangers <laughs> yeah. in town because of Mothman. And then people are right. reporting, hey, there's weird strangers. And then the strangers right, who right, are right. in town hearing about the weird strangers are like, whoa, there's weird strangers in town. And that yeah, brings yeah, yeah. more attention to yeah. the town, which brings in more strangers yeah. and more stories. And so it's, it starts to really snowball. Oh, that's interesting. And there's a, weird kind of, there's a weird kind of thing that shows up in a lot of the description of the strangers that people are reporting. And this maybe says something about the, the town in 1966. It was a very small town in, in the center of America. Uh-huh. But a lot of the people say, yeah, there's, there's, there's these weird strangers in town, and they're not white people. Mm-hmm. So I think that that probably plays into some of the attitudes at the time and, and some of the changes that were happening in the society and some of the fears that might have been held by small-town America. Well, I think just before we went on uh, today, we were talking about the possibility that sometimes these um, monsters just act like kind of vessels of cultural fear yep. uh, that, you know, people just are projecting whatever they're worried about at the moment. If you're losing livestock, oh, well, maybe it's, you know, this stranger that everyone's talking about. Or if you are worried about your community and, and, and the influx of others, quote unquote, from the outside, you know, you start worrying about these strangers who are coming and they're so different from us. Um, is that what's happening here? I mean, is this just basically it, it's, a big it's hard empty n- vessel? It's hard not to read that into it when you're reading the Mothman prophecies and consistently report after report after report refers to uh, the darkened skin color of these strangers or the accent mm. of these strangers. It's hard not to just see that as, oh, maybe those were just people from outside town who were in town looking for the Mothman. Right, so, right, right. And then the, t- people, the townspeople... You know, I see. Okay. And then they start telling stories about those strangers, and then the people who show up looking for Mothman become part of the story of Mothman. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So Keel spends months driving around the the area, going up to the TNT area, um, often until like four o'clock in the morning. He 
he's become ob- obsessed with this, of trying to track down this creature. Uh, mm-hmm. Keel and Mary hire spot a UFO on April 6, 1967, while driving through an isolated area. And at this point, the town is just absolutely infected with rumors. In, in mid-1967, remember Woodrow Derenberger, who had in, encountered Ingrid Cold before all of this okay. started? Well, there's a yep. rumor in 1967 going around the town that he is pregnant with the child of the alien he claimed to have seen in November of 66. Huh. And I've got, wow. a, I've got a quote from Keel uh, about, okay. about sort of this time period. Okay. The events of 1966 to 67 had fractured everyone's sense of credulity. Almost anything now seemed possible. A pregnant man was no more absurd than the winged behemoth. A fantastic new world was taking shape, populated by spacemen who drove Cadillacs and Volkswagens, psychiatrists who heard bodiless voices in the night, and things that ate dogs and cattle while everyone was looking in the wrong direction. It was kind of like Charles Fort's Army of the Damned was basically on the march in West Virginia. Right. (laughs) But part of the problem is that some of these experiences that Keel had, we know now, were actually engineered as pranks by Gray Barker. Right, 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 right. Gray Barker was phoning him up. Gray Barker was like making weird noises into his, into his, into the places that he was staying. Like Gray Barker was pranking this guy. But what yeah. happens is that John Keel starts to spin into paranoia. He starts asking mm. questions like, "Wait, is is the UFO contactee phenomenon actually a form of mind control?" Is it like a, a Manchurian candidate thing? When people mm-hmm, think mm-hmm, they were kidnapped mm-hmm. by aliens, were they actually maybe taken by the CIA to become assassins? Right. Keel wonders, are the men in black following me? Are they tapping mm-hmm. my phones? Are they reading my mm-hmm. thoughts? Were the men in black maybe just aliens themselves? And at this point, maybe because he isn't sleeping enough, or maybe because I haven't been sleeping enough, Keel starts to see omens and signs everywhere. And he thinks the you signs know, are telling him the future. This reminds me so much of the Paul Benowitz story. It does. And I think especially when there's some agent, and I don't necessarily now mean the CIA, but somebody like uh, Gray Barker, who is pranking you, and you're trying to really investigate something, and in the Paul Benowitz case, it was the CIA agent who was doing it, you can really start to, it seems, lose grasp of reality. Like, it's, it's quite startling how devastating an impact this can have on somebody's sense of reality. Yeah, our senses of reality are not as solid as we think they are. They're much more like the Silver Bridge, in which you always <laughs> feel like you're never quite on a good footing. Right, so, no. so Keel starts to put together, using patternicity, he's seeing numbers everywhere and significance in numbers, and, and basically yeah. everything becomes significant to him now. He decides that the Pope is going to be assassinated on July 26th and that America would lose electricity and be plunged into darkness after that happened and then absolute chaos would happen. And Mm. so he rents a car, he fills it with supplies, he drives out to a place called Mount Misery and he just sits out there to await the chaos. And of course, that that doesn't happen. Right. But he, he continues to see coincidences and synchronicity everywhere. He sees all these biblical implications he, he feels persecuted by the IRS. He feels persecuted by the men in black. He starts to see these, these sort of portents of doom. And not only does he feel these, but the other people that he's interacting with, the other people who are in the UFO community, they all start to feel it as well. 
And I've got another quote uh, from the book that I wanted to read. Here, he's speaking with a friend called Dan Draslin, and Dan Draslin is another UFO researcher. Okay, so here's the quote from the book. Dan Draslin was on the line, and I had never heard him in such a state. His normally calm voice dripped with terror. How can I stop all this, Keel? he cried. Stop what? All the things that have been happening. I want to quit. I want out. Look, said Keel. I just got in. What's wrong? What's been happening? Everything. I can't take it anymore. I knew Dan didn't drink or take drugs, and I certainly never expected him to go to pieces. There's only one way out, Dan. This damned thing becomes an obsession, a fixation. The only way to stop all the nonsense is to stop thinking about UFOs. Get rid of all of your files. Take up stamp collecting or chasing women. The UFO business is an emotional quicksand. The more you struggle with it, the deeper you sink. Hmm. Well, of course, he's saying that, but at the same time, he has sunken in. Right, sure. And because he's seeing all these portents of doom, he finally decides that he knows what's going to happen. It's going to happen December 15th of 1967. There's going to be a massive uh, electromagnetic pulse catastrophe. Or there's going to be a power plant along the Ohio River that's going to explode. Wow. Um, he predicts this. He predicts this. And, uh, well, hold, hold on. I'm sorry. Because this is going to be a lot's going to hinge on this. Yeah. <laughs> when does he predict it? And how do we know for sure that he predicts it? Is this in print? This is in print. This is what he has said. He says it's going to happen December 15th, 1967. Uh-huh. Neither of those things happened December 15th, 1967. Actually, and you might think that at that point, would he then sort of pull back from this sort of patternicity and theorizing and say, oh, wait, uh-huh. I think I've been reading too much stuff into these things. I've been looking into the chaos of the world and then assembling it into something that made sense to me. Yeah. That's not what happens. Instead, he realizes the signs have been lying to me. They've been deliberately misleading me. Uh-huh. So he still doesn't abandon sort of the grand narrative. It's just that he right. changes his grand narrative. <clears throat> yes. And then that, you know, from psychological research, we've seen that happen over and over again, that um, that tends to be what people will do. People will, will tend to do whatever they can in order to maintain the story that they've been telling themselves about how the world works. And, and, and that's not just people who are paranoid or people who are wrong. That's, that's all, all of us. Of us. So yep. if, if there's something that challenges the way we are interpreting the world, you don't then just immediately go to drop uh, how you've been interpreting the world. You just try and account for why there was a slip up here and there. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the most human things that we do. But he had picked a very good date for this to work. Yeah, of course, because on December... In terms of his prediction. Yeah, because on... Of course, on December 15th, 1967, the Silver Bridge collapses. It tips over, it falls into the river, like, it's, it's rush hour, it's, it's a Christmas shopping now, this season. Has nothing to do with the TNT plant nearby, because nope. if it did, that would actually work in terms of his prediction, right? Yeah, it had nothing to do with the plant, it had everything to do with the fact, like, we know why that bridge collapses. Okay. There was a failure of an I-beam due to metal fatigue caused by an, uh, unanticipated increases in the weight and amount of vehicles that were driving over it. And okay. that design, there, that was a flawed design. It didn't have enough built-in redundancies. And so when one part of it failed, the entire bridge collapses into the river in a matter of seconds, and 46 people are killed. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the end of the Mothman story in a way. And it becomes sort of the, 
the exclamation mark on that story to the point that... How come? Well, because then people retroactively and look back at the Mothman saga and say, wait, what if it wasn't a threat? What if it was a warning? What if Mothman had been trying to warn us this whole time? And in fact, if if you look online for pictures of the Silver Bridge, you're going to find one where you can mm-hmm. see this strange figure perched on top of uh, one of the suspension towers that appears to be a dark figure with giant wings. Huh. However, if you look more carefully at that picture, you'll realize that's not the Silver Bridge at all. It's some other bridge. And that picture was taken in 2003. Okay. So again, like just, just as I'm finishing up, there's like, like just one last bit of misinformation, one last bit of confusion to muddy the waters of this whole story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it all adds to the chaos. Right. And that is the story so, of the Mothman. So what, what is the Mothman then for you? Uh, I think, even though you've not actually said it, you don't think that the Mothman is a physically existing animal-type being that is roaming around, but just has not yet been cataloged by uh, mainstream zoologists. You don't think that's what it is? No, but I think that it, I, th- I think it was a real phenomenon. Now, we have to, we're splitting hairs here. The, <laughs> yes, we are. Was the phenomena, the thing real or the the experience? Of the experience thing? of the thing was real. That's what ah, I'm comfortable okay. in saying. I Your, think that the experience, experience of the thing was real. And in fact, I've okay. spent three weeks on the Mothman, and I feel like I've had <laughs> a real experience of the Mothman myself, especially okay. these days, of course, when we're right. living in this strange right. pandemic. We are reco- recording where uh, here the, the quarantine is really starting uh, to be un- under, go, get underway. Yep. And yeah, so the last three weeks have been just quite isolating. Yeah. What I noticed about all of these events is that it has a kind of similar uh, development. You know, it starts with one or two people who might see something, who contact the authorities, the authorities get interested, other people hear about it, they start seeing stuff, they contact the authorities, that validates the original people and uh, who they were telling. It seems to suggest that, no, there is something going on, and how, in fact, the whole phenomena can be generated just because people believe that other people believe that they've seen something. Yeah, and that's why this one's such an interesting example, because then when people flooded to the town to check it out, the locals were like, oh, there's a lot of weird strangers. And then the people who had flooded to town were like, what? Weird strangers? (laughs) Okay, so Mothman, not a biological entity, but able to affect biological entities and an actual really existing phenomena in some weird way. Yeah. That's it's only by virtue of our reaction to it. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm comfortable in saying about the Mothman at this point. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. you've got convinced me so far. Now, a couple more things. One, yes. if you email us at podcast at the uncoverup.com, if you're one of the first 10 people to email us. Uh, up on Instagram, we're going to put a photograph that I took of, of the Mothman scaring people in a car. Uh, and if you're one of the first 10 people to email us at podcast at com, I will send you a postcard of that photograph, assuming that the post office is still working by then. Cool. Hey, um, 
I've not been around for a couple of episodes. And uh, the last one I listened to, or the one before the last one I listened to, I almost fell off my chair when I heard of the promotion you were doing to get 400 people to leave comments on our on uh, on iTunes about our show. And if we get 400 comments, you are going to what again? Excuse me, to say that again? Because I really couldn't believe it the first time you said it. I'm going to get a tattoo of a flying saucer on my arm. And I also promised that you would too. Nah! No, you cannot. I will not, but I will gladly... Oh, I'm so excited to watch you get uh, a flying saucer tattooed on your arm. Of course, so we'll have I to wait am... until a time when we're allowed to be within six feet of each other again. I think you will have to do like a prison pen tattoo yourself. I mean, a promise is a promise. You did it. You did it on air. So I've, or, <laughs> I've, hold you to it. I've already got one of those <laughs> tattoos on my left arm. I want a okay, professional so one on my right arm. Okay. If, so if yes. So if you go to anybody, to yes. comment, uh, review us on iTunes or uh, go and uh, follow us on Instagram, where we will be putting these. I'm going to do a whole series. I've got a, a Mothman photograph, a Bigfoot photograph, and a Loch Ness Monster photograph, and we'll have contests for each one. Okay. And so, yeah. So other than that, cool. I'm not kidding about this. My phone is now telling me that you're calling again. <laughs> I'm not even kidding about this. Well, I hope you're still around for the next episode, my friend. Yeah, I hope that we're all still around. And if you are in Tacoma... Uh, I know we got a lot of listeners in Tacoma, and I know things in Washington are a bit rough right now. So if you're in Tacoma or Seattle or Bonnie Lake, this is just a, a shout out to you or New York State or basically anywhere. Uh, thanks for listening. There. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for listening. Good luck. And we'll see you uh, next time for Bigfoot. For Bigfoot. I look forward to it. All right. <laughs> thanks, Nathan. Um.